I love building stuff. I love figuring things out, uh, how things are put together, how things work in synchronicity together. I like, I love figuring out systems. It, it felt pretty natural for me to do engineering. But at the time, it wasn't obvious that, you know, tech wasn't an obvious career choice. And even within the discipline of mechanical engineering, there are aspects of software. So I did just that and ended up building lots of robots and programming them anyway, you know, so it was fun. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Tiang Lim Fu is the co-founder and managing partner of Forge Ventures, a venture capital firm looking to partner with founders in Southeast Asia at the pre-seed or seed stage. Before Forge Ventures, he was a partner at Seed Plus, a seed fund in Southeast Asia backed by SG Innovates, Jungle Ventures, Cisco, and the IFC. Previously, he also launched and managed Evernote's operations in Asia. Hi, Tian. Good morning. And thank you so much for joining me on your Easter holiday. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for having me. Um, what else are you going to do on a holiday, right? But doing a podcast interview. So. I guess the holidays are for doing some other kinds of work that we don't get to do on the day to day. No, for sure. I'm glad you mentioned that because... Uh, you know, that's what I use weekends for, right? Um, from Mondays to Fridays, it's just so much going on. You're in the trenches all the time. And I'm glad we have the weekends to, I want to say do work, but at least take a step back to really think about the week, think about the week ahead. And, you know, thinking a little bit more long-term, right? I think uh, all of us need that kind of reprieve once in a while, you know? Hopefully the podcast is able to do that for you. Get to think a bit more about what you guys have done so far at Forge and how your career has been up until this point. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, far away. I guess like for me, when I had been starting Basscoop, I had already started seeing your name like quite a lot on my LinkedIn. So you're one of those mm -hmm. people when I was starting out with Basscoop where I was like, okay, this guy looks like he invests in a lot of stuff. I should follow him. <laughs> so I had always <laughs> been sort of following your profile since then. And I guess the thing that I realized with you is that I see a lot of your investments. I see a lot of what you're doing in the ecosystem, but I had mm -hmm. not actually understood how you got started or what your background was. So I think that's where I really want to start. I know you grew up in Singapore, but what was your childhood like? Chronologically forward, I'll start. But so, you know, I, I love that you're asking these questions because, um, sorry, I digress a little bit, but whenever I go into a pitch meeting, it's almost always the first question that I ask, which is, hey, founders, tell me about your origin story, right? It's just like every superhero, they have their own version of origin story. And I would love to, and the pitch deck is a terrible vehicle to communicate the origin story of people, right? Because inevitably, you go to the slide where they uh, have a team. It's always a profile photo with a bunch of logos and it doesn't tell you much, right? So this is my version of my origin story, right? I was actually born in Malaysia. And uh, when I was 15, I won a scholarship to study in Singapore and had been here ever since. So it went through the went through high school, went through what we call junior college here. That's the A-levels equivalent. 
here in Singapore, went to uh, NUS, the National University of Singapore, and subsequently through a program called the NUS Overseas College Program, spent some time in uh, Stanford in Palo Alto. I majored in mechanical engineering. Um, I'm a nerd. I like to build things. I like robots. I still do. And because of that, one of my first jobs was um, building and designing medical devices. So I was in San Jose. It was a prototyping lab doing R&D in stents and catheters. You know what those are? It's like tubes that you that you insert into your body for uh, operations and, and what have you, right? Um, so I was designing manufacturing processes that pr produces that. It was fun, right? I, I really enjoyed my time doing that. Um, but, you know, my girlfriend at that time was in Singapore still. So I came back home and from hardware, I decided to pivot into software to continue on the theme of uh, I want to continue to build products and stuff, right? And the year was 2010. And this was more than 10 years ago, as you would imagine. Barely anything has, barely anything's happening in, in uh, startup land here in uh, Southeast Asia, right? There were a handful of VCs, maybe less than a handful of startups working on, you know, truly product-driven businesses. You know, most startups are like, we're a web agency or we're, we develop mobile apps, right? In fact, tech wasn't even a career choice. Most of my peers, they were physics engineering uh, by, by training. Uh, I'm an engineer by training. Most of my peers, uh, you know, chose a career in semiconductors, manufacturing, oil and gas. Do you know how much they get paid in oil and gas? <laughs> Sometimes I regret my career choice. <laughs> no one's really thinking about tech as a career, right? Facebook was just barely starting out. Google just launched their really small 10 people office here in Singapore. It was really early, you know. So I decided to join a friend of mine to work on a startup. It was in mobile payments and I was, I became the product manager for the product, right? What ended up happening was we raised a very big air quotes Series A in 2010. It was laughable because the round was a million dollars. I know, so quaint today. Um, and it's a million dollars, Singapore, a million Singapore dollars, no less, right? And the VCs insisted that, oh, this is a Series A. It's like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever, right? So they end up doing that and work on the product for two years. For various reasons, it didn't become successful. And one of the biggest reasons was because we were, we were young and kind of stupid, right? So, <laughs> but, learn, but learn a ton. And the experiences at that time continue to pay dividends even today, right? Uh, learn a lot of lessons uh, from that journey. Subsequently, I went to a company called Evernote. You might have, you might have uh, heard of it. This is where I think, you know, in hindsight, it became one of my guiding principles in, in my life, right? You know, from a career standpoint, which is to just seek out really interesting people working on interesting things. And one of the group of really interesting people that I seek out when I was in California was the founding team of Evernote. You know, I downloaded the app. It was 2009. I became a fanboy of the uh, uh, company and I have fanboy tendencies. You probably will notice that, you know, my love for fried chicken and what have you. Uh, so I got a contact number. I cold called the company. It was a Tuesday evening. I remember that really clearly because besides hearing a audible sigh on the other end of the phone, the co-founder of the company invited me over to the office to have burritos on Wednesday, because it was burrito Wednesdays, right? So I was like, oh, great. I'm going to drive myself over to grab a bunch of t-shirts and stickers and 
you know, I'll be on my way, right? So I'll come over. We're we're having you no know, burrito Wednesdays. So I did just that and got to know the founding team of Evernote. At that time, they were working out of a warehouse in Mountain View, and became friends. So fast forward a few years later, when the previous startup was not doing too well, I got a call from Evernote. I think this was post Series A or B. I can't remember exactly now. They've just gotten a, a round done by uh, led by Sequoia. And they're doing really well, wanted to expand globally. And one of them was like, hey, do, don't we know a kid from Singapore? <laughs> Just check out the... So I got a call. I was like, oh, thank goodness. Please save me from myself because I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> right. So I decided to join them to start the operations here in Singapore. So I did that, launched a product here, built a community, and subsequently managed the region in this time zone. So I did a zero to one, and now now I had the fortune to go through the one to many journey, right? And I was able to, from the inside, look at how some of the best like product thinkers, designers, engineers think about building a globally relevant software product. You know, from the inside out, it was uh, it was fun. Uh, and through that platform, saw the emergence of the technology and venture ecosystem in Southeast Asia. I started traveling to Indonesia, Malaysia, the rest of the region, pre-Uber, pre-Grab. You know, I remember a time where we used to have to buy a wad of cash just to get around, you know, uh, Indonesia, Philippines, right? Because there's no concept of like a wallet. There's no concept of like credit cards, right? It's so much more easier right now, you know? So yeah, that became a, a bit of a lens for me to understand Hey, there's a lot going on here in this region. And subsequently, when the founding team left Evernote toward the end of 2015, I was part of that migration. And very fortunately, again, and you will notice that luck is an element in my career, got a call from Amit from Jungle Ventures. He reached out saying that, hey, we're incubating a seed fund. Will you be interested to come in and check it out? So I checked it out and... You know, long story short, seven years later, I'm still doing venture investing professionally. And here I am. So I think the first thing I want to ask is like, when you got the scholarship to study in Singapore, was that something that was part of your goals? Like, did you always want to get a scholarship and study in Singapore? No, it's no grand plan. I mean, I'm, I was like a 14, 15 year old kid, right? <laughs> what do I, know? <laughs> I know, you know. Again, I, I think I, I'm incredibly lucky that uh, my mom was um, really she placed a really heavy emphasis on education. And one of the things that she picked up was, you know, they used to run newspaper ads in Malaysia to advertise the scholarship. So it's the ASEAN scholarship that's awarded by the Singaporean government. And she saw that and said, hey, maybe you should try this out. And again, I tried it out, right? And here I was, you know. What was it like moving to Singapore to study? I don't think it's a big jump, right? But I think regardless, you're still young. Mm. No, it was a huge jump, actually. So I grew up speaking Mandarin. I was Chinese educated. English was not my first language. It was pretty intimidating moving to a country where everyone speaks English, that's one. And secondly, everyone speaks English at a certain level, right? You know, whatever English I learned, there was definitely a gap, right? Between, you know, me grow growing up in Malaysia and me you know, reaching Singapore, you know. So that's one. 
But on the other hand, I think, you know, I was, I think I've, I've always been naturally curious about the world and uh, it became a really good opportunity for me to just learn about the world outside of the confines of home, right? My hometown, it's a, I think 800,000 population now estimated, not a big town. I know some people used to measure like the um, reaches of civilization by using McDonald's as a barometer, right? We had our first McDonald's in you know 1995 or something like that you know and before that wasn't a thing right so imagine it's a just imagine it's a really small town uh with a really slow internet access you know i definitely didn't grow up like uh uh with a international horizon right so but coming to singapore allowed me to have that right i i was in boarding school um a lot of my peers were from indonesia they were from Philippines, Vietnam, and I got to learn a lot more about the world through my friends, right? And Singapore, right? I have Singaporean classmates. I have uh, one of my best friends to date uh, is from Hong Kong. He moved, so he was my roommate. He moved back to Hong Kong and I just learned a ton, right? Through that, you know. And then you stayed in Singapore all the while after. What made you end up taking mechanical engineering? Was it something you always were interested in? Yeah, I love building stuff. You know, <laughs> one of my hobbies is. Uh, do you know what? Oh, this is gonna be so embarrassing. <laughs> do, do you know what the uh, Gundams are? Yeah, you do. <laughs> okay, <Yes. laughs> oh, that's awesome. So I grew up building those. You know, when I was five, I think, or six, I built my first small. You know, uh, they call it gunpla, right? And I've never stopped. You know, <laughs> I'm still building those. Yeah. And it just became like, I, you know, I, I love figuring things out, uh, how things are put together, how things work in synchronicity together. I like, I love figuring out systems. It felt pretty natural for me to do engineering, you know. And at a time, I would have probably, you know, if you ask me, would I have picked something else differently to do differently? I, I would say I would have probably, instead of mechanical, mechanical engineering, picked up uh, computer science, right? But at the time, it wasn't obvious that, you know, tech wasn't an obvious career choice and mechanic, mechanical engineering is well understood. And uh, even within the discipline of mechanical engineering, there are aspects of software and all that as well. So there's that flexibility. So I did just that and ended up building lots of robots and programming them anyway, you know? So it was fun, you know? I, I really enjoy my time doing that. If I asked you when you're like finishing up high school, what did you plan yeah. to do in the future? Would you have an answer? And if ever, what was it? No, not really. I have a vague sense of at some point I wanted to be like a psychologist, you know, and one of the reasons why was because I was really fascinated with people, you know, and how people work, right? So I had this vague notion of like, huh, maybe I should do that. And of course, my Asian parents were like, <laughs> you you don't do that you know you, you don't make money studying psychology right so that's that's a fairly strong argument that i can't win against right so it's like ah oh, yeah okay that's fair engineering it is you know although at some point i was thinking maybe doing law could be interesting right uh but unfortunately my command of english wasn't good enough at that time to pursue that so engineering it is you know <laughs> You mentioned that you really learned English when you came to Singapore and that even, I guess, during high school, your command of English was not that high. Yeah. How did you sort of learn English? Was it, did you ever have mm -hmm. to intentionally go to classes or did just that just progress over time? 
Well, this is what I believe, right? If you are grown in an environment where you're forced to do something, you will do it, right? And I think uh, language is one of those. Um, I guess everyone has some kind of two different extents latent language ability if you're given the conditions to be successful, right? And I was forced into an environment where I have to do that, you know? If not, I can't survive and I can't do well. So there are lots of osmosis, you know, happening through that, right? So learning a lot, reading a lot, speaking a lot, that was definitely helpful, right? So you never really had to sort of go to specific classes. You just tried to learn as you go. Sort of like when people visit a country and end up learning over time, right? Except you you moved there and you learned over time. Exactly, exactly. So one of my superpowers, if you ask me, that I really... If uh, if I can have any superpower, you ask me, and I've given this a lot of thought. <laughs> so it's uh, the ability to speak any language upon arrival. Wouldn't that be cool, right? Yes. <laughs> you know, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm okay with flight or super strength or what have you. But, you know, I think the coolest superpower would be the would ability be to speak any language upon arrival, you know. I was asking because I had some friends who had moved to the Philippines and they picked up English, but I mm-hmm. think there was like a like a cap at some point. So even though they were in all they had high, they were in high school, had been in the Philippines for years, it was still difficult for them to pick up. Yeah, yeah. Well, you do have to have. Well, I suppose you probably need to be conscious about practicing too, right? One of my favorite books that I've read in recent years is a book called Grit by Angela Duckworth. And the way she defined grit is the ability to do a hard thing over a period of time. Thing is defined as something that you could A, practice deliberately and B, measurable so that you could measure your progress over time, right? Um, And, you know, learning languages is one of those hard things, you know, and you can get better at learning language, right? Uh, maybe you would not be a linguist. Right? I think uh, to do something really well sometimes uh, requires some latent talent. But I believe that anyone can do something better than what they were doing before if you deliberately practice it. How do you think like staying in a boarding school with a lot of international students shaped your, your mindset? Well, for one, I understand that, I, you know, it helped me understand that the world was a lot bigger than I thought it was. You know, so we talk about language, right? I was learning for the first time there are so many different languages that uh, exist, right? Of course, I know that on an intellectual level, but hearing it for the first time and just trying to figure out, you know, what are the curse words in Vietnamese and Indonesian, you know, it's, it's so fun, right? You know, and through language as a vehicle, it helped me understand every individual has a different lived experience growing up, you know. It became a really interesting lens for me to help expand my horizon looking at the world, right? I think the other effect it had on me was um, it made me realize that I could go much further beyond the confines of the current system, if you will. Because when, when, when you're growing up, I'm sure that you probably have similar experiences as well. When we're all growing up, you have a certain model of the world. There's a worldview. This is the education system. This is the end result. And you see that narrative being played out over and over again and you thought that that's the world right but being somewhere else helped me realize that you know uh you don't need permission to do something that you want to do because that's just the system talking to you their life is a lot more 
richer if you realize that's the reality, right? So, and then when you went, does it make to, sense? Yeah. Sorry, I think it lagged, that... but yes, it makes sense. Okay. I wanted to ask also about your experience in NOC when you went to Stanford in undergrad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why did you end up going? And I guess it was another international experience as well, right? Yeah, no, I, again, I super lucky. I did not know that program existed until one of my best friends, still a best friend, right? Calvin, who is the CEO and co-founder of Funding Societies, told me that he's going on to this program. What's that? <laughs> you know, am I missing out? So I, oh, no, you have to, you have to go on this program. So, okay, okay. So applied for it. Uh, it was a pretty rigorous interview process. I remember that. And luckily I ended up, you know, being admitted, right? And the draw, main draw for me was this, you know, we've established that I'm a nerd and the, as a, as a nerd, you want to have a pilgrimage at some point to Silicon Valley. You just have to, right? And to me, that's always one of the destinations that I felt like, you know, it would be great to go and check it out when I was growing up and you're reading about all this uh, technology revolution again and again and the point of origination seems to be from that very dense square mile in the United States you know so that became an opportunity for me to do just that and I didn't have any notion of um, well I guess I didn't have any notion of uh, entrepreneurship Um, I just want to go there and and see and immerse myself in that environment right and again, I was super lucky. So dialing, dialing um, time back, uh, the year was 2009. Besides the global financial crisis, there are a few interesting things that happened in that year, right? From a technology development standpoint, the iPhone 3G was launched in 2009. But a bigger deal that came with the iPhone 3G was the App Store, you know, and that changed everything, right? That changed the way software is being distributed. That changed the way, you know, uh, it became a fundamentally different platform for the next generation of category-defining companies to be built. And I was right there, right? From a timing perspective, I was, in- I was incredibly lucky. I was also very lucky to attend classes at that time, entrepreneurship classes at that time, taught by a guy named Steve Blank. So Steve, Steve, besides being a really charming person and a serial entrepreneur who's really successful, wrote a book called The Four Steps to Epiphany, which became the blueprint for Eric Ries to write The Lean Startup, right? Uh, and Eric was uh, Steve's student at some point uh, before, you know. So Steve became my lecturer and um, Eric was one of the guest lecturers, you know, in one of his classes, right? So I got to immerse myself at that point of origin, right? It was very cool and super inspiring because, you know, you get to meet some of these larger than life figures, you know, Reed Hoffman, for instance, he was again, the co-founder of LinkedIn was one of the guest lecturers in, in, in my class. And I remember very vividly at that class, we were debating a case study about LinkedIn, whether he should raise the series and he appeared suddenly at the back of the class and started giving his perspective on you know had i known x you know i would have done y it was really really cool and really inspiring right and the the other effect that it had on me was you know like a, like my like what i alluded to earlier some of these figures are larger than life but when you see them in the flesh you realize that a they're human beings too b they they to make mistakes uh, and c um, maybe you can do something to that 
no, you can try to achieve something to that effect too. You know, gave me a lot of a uh, sense of agency, if you will, to take control of the narrative of my life. Right. Uh, you know, if I were to point to a inflection point in my life and career, I think you know, going on to the NLC program was probably one of those. You know. Is there anybody, well, not necessarily in your life, but anybody that maybe you saw online, you read a lot of books about, or you listened to that massively impacted your life or the way that you think about things? Is there anybody like that? Somebody you look up to that uh, you don't personally gonna, know? Yeah, it's going to sound very cliche, but <laughs> another interesting kind of lecture that came out online on YouTube in 2009 was the lecture. Uh, commencement speech given by Steve Jobs at Stanford. You know, every few years, I, I rewatched that again and again and again and again, right? It was probably one of the best things that is on YouTube. You know? I think one of the, besides many, you know, quotables that was uh, delivered in that speech, you know, one thing that really, really stuck with me was him saying that, you know, reality is made up by people that thought that this is the best they could do at a certain point in time, right? But it's just that it's it's dream and constructed and made up by other people, you know, which means you have the power to effect and change reality if you want to. And I think that really gave me a sense of, again, agency to realize that, you know, we can make choices in life to do something right? Without the permission of, without needing to have, uh, to be given permission to do that, right? You know, no one needs to give you permission to be successful, you know, if you so choose to, right? And of course, you got to work hard, you have to work smart, and luck has, a, you know, has something to do with that too. But the intent to do that, nobody should take it away from you. And nobody is able to give you permission to do something great, you know? Why do you think that's so powerful for you that it makes you listen to it every few years? Well, I think it's a mindset that I continue to want to relearn, you know, every once in a while. You know, I'm sure you have your own version of your pandemic and COVID story, you know. Uh, I had mine, right? And every few years, there seems to be some kind of difficult situation that we all individually or collectively had to go through. You no, know, and it's just that, right? As you grow older as you do more things you know you realize that sometimes once in a while it's good to take a step back to relearn some fundamentals from first principles and try to question your choices right you know not necessarily i think there's finite between self-doubt and re-examining decisions for me it's about understanding that i always have options without being stuck in a certain whether it's a career path or things that I do, so on and forth, you know. So, When you look back at your career, what do you feel like were the most difficult moments that really shaped you? I should have been more thoughtful about this. You know? <laughs> but I've never felt like, I mean, obviously there are difficult moments and there are moments where it's incredibly stressful and what have you. But I've never thought of like, you know, those moments as defining moments right just a means to an end and the end being i want to make an impact in uh, the technology ecosystem in southeast asia right although that having been said i do think that you know as we move through life as we move through our career journey difficult moments define or not or rather clarify who you are as a person 
right? It is at those moments, I think, you know, Sequoia call those moments for companies crucible moments, right? And those are clarifying moments to help you define who you are as a person, what your values and principles are. How do you abide by those values and principles? And how do you continue to clarify your moral compass, right, as, a, as an individual? And to me, that's, that's the effect. So I'll digress a little bit. So I'm a dad. My son's turning five in August, you know, he's four currently. And one of my greatest, I won't call it anxiety, but things that, that's something I really think regularly is how do I make sure that I'm a role model to my son, right? But the funny thing about being a parent or being a kid is that you tend to take, learn things from around you, including your parents at your own pace right? I can't sit him down every Friday, 10 a.m. to teach him about honesty. <laughs> you know, it doesn't work that way, right? I have to live my life as an honest person, name another value that I want to exemplify and teach consistently, right? And that became a really interesting mirror for me to examine who I am as a person and what kind of person I hope he grows up to be, Right? And it became a really interesting basis, if you will, to think about who am I as a father, uh, who am I as a uh, leader, who am I as an investor, right? And all those had to, they be, there's a harmonizing effect in all those roles that we play in our lives, right? So I'm not implying that having being a having my son is a difficult moment. <laughs> you know, there are difficult moments, you know, as, as every parent will agree <laughs> with me, but I love being a dad. So, that, so there's that. Yeah. I'm curious, like, what is the impact of getting married and then later on being a dad had on your career? Like when you first got married and then when you first became a dad, did you notice there were changes in the way that you looked at your career in the way that you worked or anything like that? So there are two very important points in my life that I can point uh, that really impacted the trajectory of my life and career, right? The first is the NOC program and the second is being married to my wife. We married young. I think I was 25 when we married. When we were married. Um, we're celebrating our 12th year wedding anniversary this year. Imagine that, right? And I think, you know, again, really, really fortunate to be able to find someone, settle down and just have someone to go through life with you know, at a young age, that became really oddly, you know, um, liberating. <laughs> Why? Because I, do, you know, I don't have to spend time chasing skirts. You know? <laughs> I can just focus on my career and, 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 and do just that. Right. Yeah. And, um, and I had a, and she's really supportive. Um, she's intact too. So she understands the context as well. And, you know, our dinner, incredibly boring because of that um but on the flip side you know she understands what we go through right what i go through on a uh, on a daily basis so that's really really nice and helpful so it didn't necessarily change me but it's more i guess it gave me permission to do the things i want to do with some degree of i guess reckless abandon <laughs> so being a dad though you know i do i think it's an age thing probably, but also at the same time, you only really have 24 hours a day. I realized that I can't work as aggressively as I want to. I mean, for one, I'll be very reluctant to go on a business trip if I can help it. 
I do not want to travel because there are moments at home that I don't want to miss, right? You know, I don't want to miss the, you know, his first step, his first whatever, you know. And I'm glad I was there for the most part. But, you know, to work around those constraints, I think creativity stems from working around constraints. And I had to be really creative on how to achieve the same outcome by working differently, right? And that forces me to be a lot more effective, efficient. I'm a huge productivity nerd to begin with. No, I live some version of like me being a self-labeled productivity guru for four years at every, <laughs> you know. So, and I continue to geek out on you know, a, a, another new note-taking app or another new task manager, right? So to me, that came, that's, that felt a little natural, but I had to be quite creative around working around those constraints, you know. Yeah. I think, as you said, like a common theme in your life is that luck always comes in. And I feel like all of your opportunities are always sort of a friend or somebody that, you know, calling you up. What do you think laid the foundation for the luck to come in? I think there is a quote that I always try to live by, which is you make your own luck. And how do you think that you made your own luck in your own career to open up these opportunities? Yeah, so two things. I think... On the one hand, sure, you, you you have got to work hard to to get to where you want to, right? There's no doubt about that. You've got to work smart too, right? I think that differentiates you from, from the rest of the population because um, life is comp- competition, right? But acknowledging luck is very humbling to some extent too, right? Because sometimes things just happen both ways. You get lucky or you get unlucky and things just happen, right? Acknowledging that it's, uh, I think, helps ground me uh it's it's very humbling um as a net effect i always so i always think that especially if you're a founder or if you're a venture investor you are trying to be very deterministic in a probabilistic world right and the world is just that it's quite random things happen randomly sometimes but as a founder you don't care anyway right you just want to make sure that here's my vision this is why i do what i do and i'm gonna do it anyway right? Downturn, bull market, whatever, right? So that having been said, I think there's there's a method to the madness, you know, the way I think about it is that uh, from a career standpoint, from a venture investing standpoint, I think the same principles they apply. You try to be deterministic and at the same time, you want to place yourself at uh, in an environment where the likelihood of your, of your success is that much higher, right? And that's where I think, you know, making your own luck comes in. So how do I think about that, right? Uh, one of my, I think I alluded to earlier, guiding principles in my career, it's to just work on interesting things with a bunch of smart and driven people. You know, turns out that driven people will tend to organically seek out the most interesting projects to work on anyway, right? Even if they fail the first time, they'll try the second time, the third time, the fourth time, right? Probabilistically speaking, you know, the chances of their, their success is that much higher, you know. Same theory when it comes to venture investing, right? Uh, you want to invest in smart and driven entrepreneurs who tend to find the largest opportunities to work on. Of course, we're opinionated, you know, and we have to have an opinion on what's an interesting opportunity and what have you. And there's a lot more nuance than that. But uh, one of the simple fact here is that, yeah, you, you want to place yourself in an environment where you can be successful, right? So, yeah. I was curious about why you took the jump to be an operating partner and do your first ever role in investing. Had you always been interested in it or do you did you just decide no. to take the jump when you were presented with the opportunity? 
Uh, no, I did not set out to become a VC. I mean, obviously, I know what a venture capitalist is, you know, having spent time in Silicon Valley. Um, but that wasn't a career goal, right, if you will. I wasn't stacking or optimizing my resume in such a way that I'm a VC right now. You know? <laughs> that's, that's not the goal there. But to me, it's more, I think it's, it's, it's curiosity. It's the intellectual curiosity aspect of um, how I look at things. The year was 2015, 16. And uh, at that time in Singapore, at least the venture ecosystem was just getting started. Besides Jungle Ventures, there was Golden Gate, Open Space, uh, Maker, right? A handful of uh, today, you know, stalwarts of the ecosystem. And back then, everyone was just starting out, right? What got me excited was, oh, so here's something else I could do a little different than the usual career path of working in the technology ecosystem. Wouldn't it be cool to go in and just see how it's like, you know? And that's really the mentality, right? Again, like following the path of uh, smart, driven people doing interesting things. I thought, yeah, this is a group of people that's doing interesting things, right? Let's see what comes out of it, you know? That having been said, though, I think it's a combination of some of that curiosity. Another aspect of it was, you know, how do I create value given my experiences and network? How do I help founders to avoid potholes and mistakes that had made before and uh, augment their probability of success, right? Make new mistakes, right? Is what I used to tell founders, you know, don't make the mistakes that have been made before. Um, so... So yeah, so so it really is just that, you know, no grand theory of anything, you know. Um, and as a builder, why do you think you were even interested in doing investing? And if you are a builder mm-hmm. by heart, what made you stay? Yeah, so um, a few vectors, if you will. You know, if you can, you know, I can't remember what the Japanese term for this is. That you you draw a Venn diagram yeah. oh, of the what the means, what a yeah. Like that? yeah, yeah, that, right. So it's kind of like that, right? So taking a step back, you know, one Venn diagram, it's uh, one circle. It's uh, if you look at the landscape today, there's a lot more venture capital dollars being invested in this region and the ecosystem is a lot more mature. Uh, but there still seems to be a funding gap at the seed and pre-seed stage, right? Which translates to, in my mind, and a window of opportunity to... A, serve the needs of founders in that way. And B, if we get to do what we do and do it well, create a hopefully lasting franchise and firm, right? Or, you know, taking inspiration from some of the greats like First Round Capital in in the US, Floodgate in California, you know, Homebrew, right? I'd love to earn the permission to build something like that here in Southeast Asia, you know? So there's that. Um, secondly, you know, uh, kind of to your point, I think I'm a builder at heart, right? So instead of joining another platform to do that, I chose to build this myself and for all intent and purpose, you know, as opposed to building an operating business, we're building a investment management business, right? It's still a business. We have to think of it like a business, right? I remember in the early days, we were building our own website. I was running code to build internal products, you know? You know, remember the moment, and I think every founder has this moment where the moment you found a domain name and you buy it, that's when, you know, 
things become real, right? I remember that excitement. So I said, we had our own version of that. You know, it's fun. And we were doing our own PR, setting up processes and all that, right? So for all intent purposes, it felt like a startup. You know, it's like we're, we're, we're still really early in our journey, right? Um, building, building Forge as a startup, right? And one of the reasons why I chose seed investing was when you're pre-product market fit, most things are broken than they're not, you know? Um, which is, I think it's where the, to me, the fun is at, right? We get really close to, with the founders, you know, solving problems, looking at product, looking at go-to-market, company building in general. So, so to me, that's as close to the metal I get to get, you know? So, and most importantly, I think I, I, I love what I do, you know? I think in life, there are lots of things that are rational, that sounds logical, commonsensical even to do. But if it's not your thing or it, it misaligns with what you want to do, it, you just wouldn't do it or wouldn't do it well, right? You have to love what you do, you know? And I do, right? So that's why I'm still doing this. As an angel investor and a seed investor, like at least an angel investor in your own capacity, do you ever get involved in the actual building process of the startups that you invest in? Yeah, I get really involved. I use the word building pretty holistically, right? If you think about it as a company, there are many, many elements that dictate the success or failure of a company, right? Beside, of course, you having to build a kick-ass product acquiring customers, you know, recruiting and what have you. There are also the intangibles, right? Processes, governance, stakeholder management, shareholder management, um, strategy over the short, mid and long term. All those go into the birthing of a successful and enduring company, right? Culture, right? That's that's another really intangible but important aspect of company building too. And I think of myself as the extended team to help with company building in that regard, right? I would never be the best engineer building the product. I would never be the best uh, um, product manager that understands the needs of the customer in any particular company. That's not my job. In fact, you know, that's where founders are special, right? Because they do, they understand that, they know how to do that, right? But what I do know, it's at the early stage, you know, I've seen this movie many, many times, try not to make the same mistakes that others have made, right? And my superpower is to give you that perspective on what mistakes are avoidable, what to watch out for. And in some instances, rolling up my sleeves and helping the company with tactical things that I do know, like PR, communications, um, thinking about culture, thinking about recruiting and actually recruiting and, and, and interviewing candidates, right? Business development, corp their partnerships, right? So yeah, it, it's nice that way. It feels like, of course, you don't hear it from me. I think uh, hopefully my portfolio founders will tell you the same thing, but it does feel like we're working in the same team post-investment. And that's the effect that we try to achieve. So, yeah. And I guess in a typical week, how is your time divided? Like your work time, like what are the tasks that you do? Is it mostly spent in? <laughs> I wish there's like a typical calls week. Or what? <laughs> I, I wish there's a typical okay, week. Okay, there's no you know? typical week even for there's me. No but like, yeah. if you think about all of the things that you do in a month, what are the yeah. different categories of tasks that you do? Of course, there's, there's admin tasks. Of course, there are the calls. But yeah. what are all of these things? There's uh, copying and there's pasting and pushing the send button. <laughs> there's a lot of that, right? Yeah, I mean, if you really think about it, what I do 
99% of the time is going to meetings, taking notes and, and sending emails and picking up phone calls. You know, it's, it's just that, right? <laughs> so sometimes you can feel pretty reactive, you know, because at Forge, we tend to lead rounds, we take board seats, we get really involved with founders. And because of that, we tend to get a lot of requests or inbound help to for for various stuff, right? It can be as strategic as, hey, uh, Tian, how do I think about recruiting our first head of sales, right? Uh, you know, shall we spend 30 minutes talking about that? Or, hey, Tian, uh, do you have a template for ESOP agreement, for instance, right? It can be as minute as that, you know? So that's where copy and pasting really helps, you know? <laughs> but it can, be, it can feel really reactive because of that sometimes. Most of the time, it's me trying to proactively, you know, think about and think ahead for companies that I'm involved with, right? Uh, one instance, it's, uh, I'm sure you, you've you been thinking a lot about this as well, you know, everyone in technology is, it's the emergence, the sudden emergence of uh, generative AI. It was fascinating, right? So when we first saw the demo late last year, everyone was blown away. And by January, I had four board meetings, you know, two in education, one in insurance, one in uh corporate secretary businesses, everyone had some degree of like, we need to think about chat GPT as either an opportunity or a threat or both, right? And it impacts a diverse range of industries. And so taking that vantage point, how do I then help other portfolio companies that had not thought about it, or it might not be immediately obvious to them and encourage them to think about six months, 12 months later, how this would impact their product, their business, and, and what have you, right? So it's a bit of a strategy sounding board role in that sense. So that's what I do. I read a lot. Uh, I try to digest a lot of information because I think one of the fortunate positions where being a venture investor, we get to do is to, at a high level, look at a lot of patterns um, at the same time, right? Where a founder might not necessarily have the vantage point or luxury to do. And we try to make sure that they are equipped with those, uh, I wouldn't call it insights, but at least observations that we get to see and make to help them, again, augment the probability of their success, right? What are parts of the job that people may not actually realize? We don't see around hotels drinking cocktails all the time. So <laughs> <laughs> I wish... You know, like there used to be a, you know, the, there's a meme that says, you know, what my parents thought I was doing, what my friends thought I was doing, what I'm actually doing is uh, that meme. It's, it's really funny to think about it that way, right? I still have challenges telling my, what, telling my mom what I do for a living. And I've by and large given up, you know, telling my mom what I do for a living. I think one of the biggest misconceptions here is that, so, you know, so in finance, there's a notion of like buy side and sell side. Right. Generally speaking, you know, sell side means you're selling equities, buy side means you're buying equities, right? In some technical definition sense, uh, being in VC, it's buy side because we're buying equity. Personally, I've never felt that way. I always felt like we're sell side and sell side. Why? Um, we're always selling to LPs, right? We're always pitching LPs, you know, invest in my fund, invest my, in my strategy, this is what we do. We're also al almost always selling to founders. Too, right? Because on the one hand, capital is commodity is the definition of commodity. A dollar is a dollar is a dollar, right? And on the other hand, you know, it's not really. There are implications taking capital from X versus Y versus Z, right? There are different implications doing that. And constantly, if we want to 
partner with some of the best founders and best founders have options in, and in all sense of the word, we're trying to sell ourselves as a team, you know, as a firm so that some of the best founders can allow us to partner with them. Right. So it feels that way where we're, we're constantly selling, right. And we're a startup firm, right. We're constantly selling to uh, potential candidates to join our team as we, as we grow, as we recruit, you know, that's another, no sales job by any other name. So I think that's the biggest myth, right? People think that we're, we have leverage, we have the power. We do in some cases, but in most cases we, we don't, right? We have to constantly prove ourselves and prove ourselves again and again, you know, so. What do you do on a weekend outside of work? Like where would we be finding you? I read, I read a lot. Um, it's one of the things that I do consistently. Um, I do long distance running too, you know, uh, it's what keeps me every week or how I try to do, I try to do 15 to 20 kilometers per week. Um, I don't do it at one go. I break it out by five, 10 at any session, but I do do that. Right. It's, uh, besides, I think it's important to continue to, you know, keep healthy and work out long distance running has a meditative effect for me, you know? And it's also easy. I just pull on my shoes and off I go, right? You know, so there's that, right? So yeah, that's that's, that's what I do. You know, also I spend time with my kid. His school is starting to give him homework. He's five, right? He's starting to give him homework, so I help I help him with homework. I read with him. You know, it's just one of those nice things. And then I guess I also want to know, apart from what you mentioned about the the running, what are mm-hmm. sort of books that you really enjoy reading apart from the usual, I guess, business-related books? Oh, my strategy is they can try to drill down as much as I can, right? So if I'm really curious about, let's say, venture capital at this moment, I'll try to read anything and everything I can find about venture capital, you know, until another new, I guess, topic of curiosity comes to mind, right? And I tend to pair that with reading another kind of fiction book in parallel, right? So right now I'm reading on the nonfiction side, um, the semi-autobiography of the former foreign minister of Singapore, George Mm -hmm. Yeo. He recently published a series of books called Musings. So I'm reading that on the nonfiction side. Really interesting because it helps me give a sense of history for the region. And it helps me understand geopolitics geopolitics as as it currently stands and what might happen in the near future, right? So that's really helpful and interesting. On the fiction side, I read a lot of sci-fi, science fiction. Um, I most recently finished reading an anthology of short stories um, about the end of the world. Really bleak, but super entertaining, right? Entertaining, Uh, really. (laughs) Really entertaining. so it's a collection of short stories from uh, you know, fantasy and sci-fi writers like Isaac Asimov, Neil Gaiman, um, Josh R. Martin, right? So, um, yeah. Do you believe that the world will end? I was honestly convinced as a kid that in 2010, like the world would end. I like prayed before sleeping that night <laughs> in case I would die. <laughs> oh, my version of that was the year 2000. You know, there, there was a period of time where everyone's worried about the Y2K bug, right? <laughs> you know, because of some archaic coding error, the world's going to stop because of Y2K, right? 
obviously did not, you know. <laughs> so, you know, but I do think at some point it was going to end, of course. Intellectually, you know that, right? But we'd be, hopefully not in my lifetime or my kid's yeah. lifetime or my, my grandkid's lifetime, but at some point, you know, it will. But here's where I remain an optimist, right? I think the humankind has always surprised me by, you know, our inventiveness and ingenuity using technology to solve some of the biggest problems, you know. And some of our biggest problems today, climate change, food production, what have you, the corresponding, for a lot of these problems, there are already a corresponding technological development that's at least promising, if not can actually solve a lot of problems that we currently have, right? The problem then is distribution of innovation that's not equal across the world. Now, one of the, my favorite quotes of all time, it's by William Gibson. It's a sci-fi writer again. They go something like, you know, technology is already, you know, the future is already here. It's just not equally distributed, right? And and I see that, especially in my day job as a venture capital, capitalist, we tend to get to see innovation before the mass population sees it. And I look at our job is to help catalyze the distribution of innovation, right? And amplify that, you know? This is my version of, I want to make the world a better place. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. I guess to wrap up, my last question is the question I ask every guest that comes on the podcast. And that is, uh-huh. outside of your personal life, I mean, outside of your work, what's one thing you want to achieve in your personal life? It doesn't have to be something you achieve this month, this year, or even in the next five years, but what comes top of mind? Do you know Modern Family? It's like a sitcom series. Yes. Well, my... <laughs> so good, right? I'm, I'm kind of sad that it's done now. It's such a great series. And you know, and what I love about it, it's uh, this instance where Jay Pritchett, the patriarch of the family, he was like receiving an award for some like Lifetime Achievement Award. So it turns out that he wasn't being awarded that award right, by some mistake but uh <laughs> the ending scene was really nice so the, the, he had a he gave a speech to his family and and he said no i've done many and i'm paraphrasing here i've done many things in my life and one of the greatest things i've done is my family right uh and he said my lifetime achievement award is my family you know and i thought that was really really nice you know i hope that i could live up to that you know i want to make sure that i have a relationship with my son uh, with my family over the long term. I mean, life is just that, right? So the the most important things in, in life, in my view, it's having those relationships that are meaningful. And at the end, end of the day, that's what matters, you know? And so hopefully I get to be a part of my son's life for you know, a while, you know? So, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Chan, for joining me today. I feel like I learned so much about you and so much that I can also take with me throughout the rest of my journey. And I'm sure a lot of people would benefit from a lot of what you shared. Yeah, having me here, was, uh, it was an honor. And, you know, let me just say this, uh, watching the work that you're doing from afar and, you know, back school really just coming out of nowhere and hitting all the new milestones at every turn was amazing to watch. You know, I admire your uh, grit, tenacity. I'm sure it has been you know, intense, and I'm sure it continues to be intense, but keep out the good work. It's a great thing that you're doing for the ecosystem. 